to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined by Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. And today we are talking about gatekeeping. But before we get to that, we'll take drink orders and find out what you're ranting and or raving about. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking? What are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a whiskey sour today, and I am raving about the Broadway musical Kimberly Akimbo. So I took a trip to New York in May to visit one of my friends, Emma Bianchi, and we went to go see Kimberly Akimbo on Broadway. This is a fantastic show. If you like musicals, which I love and I know Rick does as well, this is one of the best I've seen in a long, long time. It's about a young girl, 16-year-old girl, who has a rare genetic disorder that causes her to age at four times the regular rate. So although she's only 15 or 16 when the show starts, she's played by a 60-something-year-old woman. And of course, it's partially about all of the teenage growing up drama, but also about the disease that Kimberly is battling. And it tells this really amazing story about how when you're young, growing older is the cure. And when you're old, growing older is the disease. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend it. Kimberly Akimbo, go see it. And can I sub-brave Emma Bianchi? Yes. Love you, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) One of our Patreon supporters. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? So I'm just going to have an Allagash White, and I am raving about How to Blow Up a Pipeline, the movie. So How to Blow Up a Pipeline is a book by Andreas Malm, published by Verso. I think this is the first time Verso's had one of their books made into a movie, unless there's a minimum Moralia film out there somewhere, which is I love <laughs> I would love to see it. Although, I, actually, I thought about that and I was like, you could totally do that as a series. Yeah, I mean, of course. Morality, yeah. It would be like Curb Your Enthusiasm, only more so. Uh, more dream anyway. shots. Yeah, exactly. So How to Blow Up a Pipeline, it should be called Why to Blow Up a Pipeline, because it's an argument about why, given the inability of elected officials to do anything about global warming, why people should maybe take in their own hands a nonviolent destruction of property and so on. The film is an interesting adaptation of that. It's done as a heist film. It's very kind of like white knuckle, but it's just amazing to know that it exists. Like when I saw the movie and I saw it in the theater, there was the usual trailers and I just realized how much a lot of films are just complete military propaganda. And it's so good to see a film that is, it's definitely an agitprop kind of work, but it's like a different kind of propaganda for doing something about global warming. So it's a fun film to check out. And it really works as a film, even if you're not there for the politics. Hmm. Well, I was going to rave, but I'll turn my rave into a rant, <laughs> and then I'll sub-rave my own rant. But I'm drinking a Reisdorf Kolsch, and today I am ranting about, um, what's his name? Uh, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, the governor of Florida is one of my best buds. Love you, Ron. (laughs) And there are so many things I could rant about this week, but I'm going to pick out his mulling over whether to send the Florida National Guard to the Texas border because of the quote-unquote immigration crisis. Mm. 
But let me sub-rave the students at New College in Florida who staged an alternative commencement to protest his takeover of the board of trustees of that university. So here's to you, students. Go get my buddy Ron. (laughs) Allude to continua. (laughs) All right, Lee. So we're talking about gatekeeping. How are we going to approach this? Well, I want to start off by just pointing out, I don't think a lot of people know this, but gatekeeping is a term that actually originated in 1943 when Kurt Lewin coined it in his study, Forces Behind Food Habits and Methods of Change, to describe how Midwestern housewives effectively managed their family's food consumption during World War II. So housewives, who were the primary conduit for getting food from the marketplace to their families' mouths, recognized that not all family members' need for food had equal weight. And so in making household food decisions, those wives would typically shop for and prepare the food and gate what food resources came in and how they were distributed. So that's to say that the original meaning of gatekeeping wasn't just about setting up gates to keep people out of some place where they didn't merit admission. It was about how to distribute scarce resources within an already gated community where there just weren't enough resources for everyone. So it was about survival. But today, gatekeeping is not only not about keeping people alive, (laughs) but we could argue that in many cases, it's about denying access to scarce resources, professional, interpersonal, political, economic, that people really do need to survive. So today I want to talk about who are the gatekeepers and how did they come to be so? By what right? On what authority? Those of us sitting outside trying to get in, we want to know. (laughs) All right, guys. So there are a lot of different forms of gatekeeping. I mean, I can think, for example, of the way that in our profession – There are gatekeepers about who gets hired, who gets promoted, who gets featured, and who gets published. But, you know, there are social forms of gatekeeping, political forms of gatekeeping. I'm just wondering if you guys have some sort of favorite examples of gatekeeping. I think one form that you mentioned, Lee, that's being discussed a lot more lately than it ever has been is the process by which particularly essays get published in scholarly journals. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, I'm thinking about you, Dave. When someone writes an essay, they submit it to a scholarly journal to be published, and that usually, in good journals, is sent out to reviewers or referees who don't know the identity of the author in the best-case scenario, and they advise the editor on whether to publish it or not. And that process has really been coming under a lot of fire lately, Because of this negative connotation of gatekeeping, that journals tend to publish the same thing from the same perspective, we in the profession have the joke about the famous referee number two or reviewer number (laughs) two, who's usually just a big asshole. And so I think that's one form of gatekeeping that I've had on my mind lately, just because the discussion of it has been in the air quite a bit for the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, for a long time in philosophy, one of the gates that was kept the most stringently, I'm not sure that that's the right adjective, but you know what I mean, uh, that had the biggest locks on it was the gate that was titled 
what is real philosophy? Mm. For a long time, you know, if you were doing feminism or if you were doing queer theory or race theory, or even in some cases, just social and political theory, value theory, people were like, well, that's not real philosophy. And it's kind of hard to point to particular gatekeepers, but we all knew them when we met them because they would say to you, that's not real philosophy. But who set that standard and how did it change? You know, it's a mystery, really. Yeah. Well, and yeah. for a long time, continental philosophy was not considered philosophy. Right, right. <laughs> and then the interesting phenomena is because one gate didn't open. As we know, a lot of continental philosophers, especially French philosophers, people like Derrida, Deleuze, etc., were taken up and taught in different types of academic programs, like mm. comparative literature and other programs. So because one gate didn't open, another gate was opened. And then that still kind of persists this day. I mean, one of the biggest gates in philosophy is this gate of, as you said, who gets to be called a philosopher and mm -hmm. who gets to be considered doing real philosophy. And, you know, I think people have different definitions of it. Some people, it's very much an institutional definition. If you're in a philosophy department, you're a real philosopher, right? right? Right. Other people use other normative sense of what real philosophy is. And there's also a question of what a philosopher is supposed to look like. There was an incident very recently where a woman posted on Twitter a picture of David Hume and a picture of herself and something yes. like this is what a philosopher yeah. looks like. And she wrote a blog post about this later and she was subject to some of the most cruel, misogynistic and violent sort of reactions to this because she was a woman, she was younger than what a philosopher would look like, but mainly because she's a woman and subject to some of the harshest kind of gatekeeping. And there is, I think, around philosophy, unlike other things, because philosophy is seen as synonymous with like reason, rationality, etc. There are some people who are really invested in those gates, who are really mm -hmm. at the gates at all times, ready to slam them shut or brandish their weapons to keep people out. I have a colleague, and there's no chance in hell he listens to this podcast. <laughs> um, but if he does, you know who you are. And he's someone who constantly locks that gate and polices that gate. And he's like the quintessential old man in front of the gate, like, you kids get away from my gate. And we've beaten him down enough that he stopped saying that's not real philosophy. And now he says... That's not traditional philosophy. Mm. But yeah, there is a lot of this gatekeeping going on and usually trying to guard what the status quo has been maintaining out of a certain kind of fear, I think. You know, when you mentioned that rejoinder, this is not what traditional philosophy is, that reminds me a lot of the argument that we're hearing now in the Republican Party, where it seems like everyone's accusing everyone else of being a rhino, a mm. Republican in name only. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, that person's not a real conservative. So this is the claim leveled against most of the MAGA Republicans is that they're not actually real conservatives. They're something else. Yeah. So the word real does a lot of gatekeeping work yeah. in a lot of different ways. But I think we're kind of dancing around the topic. What is the point of the gate? Is it just to be able to call yourself a philosopher or call yourself a Republican or whatever? Or is there a more significant sense of legitimacy that we gain when we're recognized by the gatekeepers or let inside the gates? I mean, I suppose people would argue there's a positive side to this, right? It's not gatekeeping, but it's a quality assurance program, right? So that we right. review these articles 
articles for publication just to make sure that the journal is publishing quality work. And sure, maybe that's the case, but it also is the case that quality is a slippery enough word that it can be used as a bludgeon to actually police the gate. To me, the most positive arena in which I witness gatekeeping, or rather the arena in which I wish we had more gatekeepers, is in the arena of information. You know, in journalism schools, they teach gatekeeping theory. So the idea in journalistic ethics is that it is a part of a responsibility of a journalist to more or less filter what information gets distributed and what doesn't. And there are all kinds of measures by which You judge not only whether something is newsworthy, but also, you know, whether it's true, whether it's being presented in an unbiased way, whether it's fair, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, now, I mean, I wonder even how they teach gatekeeping theory in journalism schools anymore, because it's not as if there's just ABC and CBS and NBC out there that are the gatekeepers of information. I mean, quite literally, everyone who has a Wi-Fi connection is you know, some kind of a journalist. You know, the gates are wide, wide open right. on, the, uh, on the Internet. I mean, we see the deleterious effects of that. We see what happens when there are no quality assurance programs. Quality assurance officers. <laughs> Talk about bullshit job. <laughs> well, I mean, is it though? I mean, you know, like. Well, isn't the argument on the other side? Let's not pretend as if journalists weren't also doing a negative job of gatekeeping. As the rumors and stories go, journalists weren't talking about JFK's affair with Marilyn Monroe, even though they all knew it. Journalists never took photographs or talked about FDR's polio and being in a wheelchair. So, I mean, they were gatekeeping in, I think, some of the negative senses that we've been talking about as well. And so people look at the current age and they're like, it's not that we lack gatekeepers, it's the democratization of information. And that's good. So that argument goes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think those are two different questions, choosing between better gatekeepers and worse gatekeepers and choosing between gatekeepers and no gatekeepers. Yeah. And I guess my worry sometimes about the democratization of information is that no gatekeepers is more problematic. Right. We live through a massive transformation of a kind of gate. If you look what happened in recent memory about the blue checks on Twitter. Right. right? That was a gate. Supposedly meant you were verified. You were who you said you were. And there were a lot of celebrities, but also journalists, people in various fields of expertise could have access to a blue check is important. If they were saying something. And there was a lot of hostility towards that, especially amongst who wanted to circulate whatever conspiracy they wanted to circulate around COVID or everything else. And what Musk did is he turned, I mean, he turned the blue check into something you pay for. And now it's mm-hmm. a very different gate letting in a very different crowd. It's Musk fanboys. And as a lot of people pointed out, I mean, Twitter was sometimes the first draft. And they say like journalism is the first draft of history, but Twitter was the outline notes <laughs> before you even write the first draft. Like I would follow local journalists because if I want to know what's happening right now, right. they'd probably be tweeting yeah. about it before the story even hit right. online. Yeah, And that ability to use Twitter as a source of information disappeared when blue checks turned into 
a pay to play kind of program, right? I feel like the Dr. Seuss story with the Sneetches illustrated in real life, you know, the whole thing that blue check used to be something you wanted. Now no one wants a blue check and no one wants to touch one <laughs> with a 10 foot pole because they've been seen as someone who's willing to pay eight bucks to Musk for a formally free service. You look like a dupe or a fanboy. Yeah. But it is a, an interesting example of what happens when a gate is changed. I mean, I, I'll just say it that I'm on the position that some kind of gatekeeping around everything is sort of necessary. I mean, mm -hmm. but the real problem is, is that a lot of times people keep the gate for reasons other than what they're supposed to do. The philosophy example we talked about earlier is a classic one. People exclude women just because they're women, because it fit their standard of what a philosopher is. People exclude philosophy from places outside of Europe because it doesn't fit their image or questions they don't think of as philosophical. I mean, obviously I'm against all of that, but you know, it is sometimes useful to know what is philosophy and what's not philosophy because, well, because there's way too much stuff out there to read sometimes and want someone to be able to say, this is worth reading, this maybe not so much. So those kind of gates are necessary. Can I ask you all a side question? I tend to demure or even outright reject the label philosopher being applied to me, like, oh, Rick, you're a philosopher. And I prefer to say, you know, I'm a philosophy teacher or I'm a professor of philosophy. Do you all take on the label philosopher? I do. To a non-academic person, I wouldn't lead with, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down on the bar stool, I'm lead Johnson and I'm a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I probably would say I'm a professor. And then if they said, what do you teach? I would say I'm a philosopher, mm. I think. But I don't know. Jason, what about you? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, like you, if someone asked me the classic, you know, what do you do for a living? I would say that I teach. I usually say I teach at the university and then people ask what and then I say philosophy, and then they try to like move quietly away from me as quick as possible. Um, but I think in some context, I do think it's useful to claim it. And especially sometimes when certain questions are being marginalized, I will sometimes say I'm a philosopher mm -hmm. or I'm doing philosophy. Mm -hmm. At least I'm more comfortable saying I'm doing philosophy than yeah. I am a philosopher. I mean, one reason I ask is because I recognize in myself it's a form of gatekeeping, right? So, yeah, you know, yeah. I look at Kant or. Simone de Beauvoir, and I'm like, they're great. And I'm just this guy who's cranking out these little books about the history of a bizarre medieval concept. I'm not a philosopher. I, I mean, I teach it, but I'm not like them. And so in a sense, I am keeping the gate there and I'm keeping myself outside. But in a conversation, and especially in a disagreement, saying that you're a philosopher or even just saying that you're a professor of philosophy throws around a lot of weight, yeah. mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's a not so subtle way of telling the other person that they're not being serious or they're not being rational or they're not making sense or et cetera, right? right? So, yeah. I mean, just look at when we did that Afterthoughts episode with Dave and I was in contact with another patron because patrons, if you're listening to this, I sent out a call for any patron to participate in an Afterthoughts episode with us. And like Dave, this other respondent said, I'm a little scared because you all are philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still debatable whether I am. <laughs> I mean, I may be, but I'm a big dumb one, <laughs> as Twitter recently pointed out. <laughs> so if I could just return for a second to the comment Jason made earlier, which I do agree with, that some level of gatekeeping is necessary in almost every area of social interaction. And so for me, the problem is better or worse mm -hmm. gatekeeping 
gatekeeping. And also, really importantly, the transparency of gatekeeping, not so much whether there are gates or whether they are kept. I mean, obviously, there are important gatekeeping mechanisms that we have for our safety, right? Like, I mean, I want my medical doctor to have a medical degree. I don't want, you know, I want my mechanic to actually know how an engine runs. I think those kinds of things are important, and we can't ignore that that's also gatekeeping. Just job requirements are gatekeeping. Can you lift 50 pounds? An area I'd like to see a little bit more gatekeeping is in relation to firearms. Oh, my God. Well, you can't get more gatekeeping with firearms, though, because they're using all the firearms to keep the gates. To keep other gates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you raise an interesting point about the transparency of it. Immediately what came to my mind was FICO credit scores. Right. And who the hell knows what is inside that black box? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's so opaque that it's hard to penetrate. And yet, these days, your credit is checked not just to see whether you can get a loan or a credit card or whatever, but now also for insurance or a job. They're checking your credit score. And that is completely non transparent and, frankly, extremely frustrating. And I have a fairly good credit score. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, We would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So I want to pick up on that last point that Rick was mentioning about credit scores, because I think that we all realize now that many of the gatekeepers are actually algorithms. Algorithms are gatekeeping what journalists used to gatekeep. Algorithms are gatekeeping what bankers used to gatekeep and insurance companies used to gatekeep. Algorithms are even gatekeeping what judges used to gatekeep. So there's something not only concerning, but a little frightening about the non-transparency of algorithms, given how much they control our access to things or denial of access to things. But before we get into that, and to help us talk about the kind of Kafka-esque nature of gatekeeping, I just wanted to remind everyone of Kafka's short story, Before the Law. You guys have read this, right? Yeah. Sort of real Kafka-esque, right? Real right. Kafka-esque, straight from Kafka. So gatekeeping around Kafka-esque, because that's a place where needs to be some gatekeeping. Because people use that term for way too many things. <laughs> no, this is from the man himself. So the opening lines of this short story about Kafka are, quote, Before the law sits a gatekeeper. To this gatekeeper comes a man from the country who asks to gain entry into the law. But the gatekeeper says that he cannot grant him entry at the moment. The man thinks about it and then asks if he will be allowed to come in later on. It is possible, says the gatekeeper, but not now. Those are the opening lines to Before the Law. Now, obviously, this short story gives us a really prescient picture of 
what I think is the model of the 21st century gatekeeper, the mysterious and ruthlessly authoritarian algorithm. So I'm wondering if you guys think that we're really in a new era of gatekeeping. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about transparency, and given that we've said that gatekeeping of some sort is necessary, that if you were to set like a model of just gatekeeping, it would be both transparent and there would be some recourse to contest it. Yeah. Some ability to say like, why am I not leaving let into this door, gatekeeper? Can I talk to your boss? Or <laughs> I want to speak to the manager. Right. <laughs> Which happens in the Kafka parable. He says that he there does. are other guards that they're more powerful than I am, yeah. right? And he says like, yeah, you don't want to mess with them, yeah. basically. And I think one of the things that the algorithmic nature of gatekeeping does is it kind of black boxes the very nature of the gate. You're unable to say, I think I've been excluded for the wrong reason, right? It sort of just happens automatically. Like the credit scores, I think a great example. You don't know what the hell you did. And there are all kinds of stories about how like you can be late with one bill. You check your credit score too many times. It's almost like there's like a weird superstition around credit scores. Mm -hmm. It's like, don't do this. Yeah. The credit score gods will be angry at you or whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Because that's precisely how untransparent and unable we are to have any kind of contestation of it. And it seems to me the algorithmic gatekeeping is harder to contest because to some extent it's been automated and there's no one you can say, hey, I think you made a mistake here. I think I'm supposed to be in this gate because the algorithm doesn't really have a way to be addressed in such a way. It's like more Kafka-esque than Kafka. <laughs> Years ago, I once contested something on my credit report, and the creditor never responded to my contestation. And I think they've changed the rules about this recently, but the result of all of that was it just said on my credit report that I contest this. It didn't say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, like, this is ridiculous. But also, this is a perfect example of something else related to the black box nature of algorithms. On the face of it, it seems that what credit scores are supposed to do is give an indication to creditors the likelihood that the person they're extending credit to will pay back the credit you're offering them. One of the things they seem to look at, who knows, but they seem to look at whether you've ever been late or not. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that being late on a payment is an indication that you're not going to pay back the credit that has been extended to you. In fact, one could argue that that you paid anyhow, even though you were late, is an indication you're more likely to pay back <laughs> the credit that has been extended to you. But also what that is testing for turns out to be something more like, do you have a full-time regular job that you could pay bills as they come due? Or do you have sporadic employment and we're not sure whether you're going to pay this today or tomorrow? And so the transparency of all of this, I think, is important, especially in what is this algorithm promoting? What is this algorithm testing for? Yeah, you know, let's be honest. The reason all of this was automated was supposedly to secure banks, right? I mean, you know, so that yeah. you don't have like your dad's brother's girlfriend you know, making a decision about whether you get a loan or not. And given the performance of banks over the last 15 years, I don't think it's doing that good of a job. <laughs> you know? I've seen, and I'm not entirely up on what's happening with credit scores, but I've seen discussion about how the credit score industry, because we produce so much information about ourselves, not just whether or not we paid a bill on time or whatever, but because of social media, etc., all this interesting weird stuff. They found that people who buy exotic reptiles 
tend to default on loans. And so they want to include that. Like, did you buy a boa constrictor recently? That'll affect your credit score. The idea is total information monitoring and the sense that your credit score becomes not just this narrowly focused how much debt you have, how much you're paying your bills, but becomes a picture of you as a person. And it's interesting that in Marx's response to James Mills talks about debt in this very interesting way, and he mentions this, like you become sort of capital personified in debt. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting thing, I think, usually think of Marx talking about alienation, that the problem with capital is that it doesn't treat you as a whole person. It just treats you as your labor capacity. But when it comes to debt, the more capital tries to embrace your whole person, the more controlling it is, right? Because it wants to know everything about you because everything about you, especially in the sort of algorithmic world, becomes calculable and there is data about, say, how people who buy motorcycles pay their bills or how responsible <laughs> podcasters are. Um, all this data is being collected and this complete and total personification is a complete and total control and observation so that everything becomes that might mess up your credit score. I think two things that we also have to think about in terms of algorithmic gatekeepers is one that as with all algorithms, there's this kind of feedback loop phenomenon. So, you know, they're not just measuring a world, they're producing a world. They're not just measuring subjects, they're producing subjects as the subjects that they are. And the other thing is that they're changing so quickly. They learn so quickly and improve themselves so quickly. So unlike the olden days with human gatekeepers, if we were going to have a change in the way that we collectively understand credit worthiness, there would be a long cultural conversation about, for example, boa constrictors or whatever <laughs> kinds of exotic right. reptiles. And over time, views would change and the people who are kind of the authorities in this area would come to represent those dominant norms with regard to credit yeah. worthiness and exotic reptiles. But because the algorithms are constantly improving themselves and constantly adjusting to a world, which again, by the way, they're also manufacturing because of the way that information is gated through algorithms, buying and purchasing, not just debt, but buying and purchasing powers are gated through algorithms, yeah. criminal records are gated through algorithms, medical record, you know, everything. Because of that, they're constantly improving. You can't ever say like, well, let's just open up the black box and write the actual list of rules that it's using right Right now, because by the time it's written, the rules have changed. Yeah. And I think another example of this kind of thing is search engine optimization, SEO. Yeah. You know, there was an obvious problem at a certain point, namely that the internet became so large. I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a front page to the internet, right? Yeah. And it would just list all the websites on the internet. <laughs> and then that turned into a kind of phone book and then Google emerged. And, you know, the idea is how to find the information that's most relevant to me. So Google tried to invent this algorithm to do that. Then they tweaked their algorithm over time. And now I think search engine optimization is as much as a voodoo science as is credit scores. Mm. You know, people say, oh, you have to have links on your page or pages have to link to you or you have to update your content more. Or shake these chicken bones. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Turn around three times and burn sage. And I just heard an interview with the editor of The Verge, Nilay Patel, who is, I think, a fairly smart guy and also trained in law. And he's arguing that the emergence of chat GPT 
is going to make the internet no longer Google's internet. Mm -hmm. His argument is basically about search engine optimization, that AI, and not just large language models, but other forms of AI, will do an end run around Google's search algorithm and it'll make the internet fundamentally different. Up until now, we've been living in Google's internet, but my God, that search algorithm is a tremendous black box. Yeah. And it's huge. You know, if you're on the second page of Google, then you're dead to me. Like, (laughs) I I don't know the last time I went on to the second page. If I could just bring back Kafka once more for this talk about algorithmic gatekeepers, you know, the guy who's trying to get through the gates in Kafka's Before the Law literally dies without being granted entrance. And in his dying moments, he asks the gatekeeper, how is it that, you know, I've been here for all of these years and nobody but me has ever even requested entry? To which the gatekeeper replies, this entrance was only assigned to you. And I think that that also reflects a lot of the algorithmic gatekeeper's logic, right? It's not as if there are general rules for keeping the gate. It is just about always having a gate in front of you in particular, Mm. trying to manage, change your behaviors so that you move through particular gates that maybe nobody else is even trying to get in. And I think the element of that story that makes it most Kafka-esque of Kafka stories (laughs) is that (laughs) the gatekeeping itself is an application of the law. Right. And so the reason for the denial is never clear. And yet the law is seemingly behind the guard. Mm -hmm. The guy waiting to get in, it never dawns on him, wait, maybe that guard is the law and maybe Mm -hmm. gatekeeping just is the law. And so the idea that somewhere back there, there's a reason for this or, you know, someone knows what the hell's going on. We all seem to have that idea. And yet we're constantly held away from getting back there, you know, getting to the manager, getting into the office where the manager is. And that's one of the frustrating parts of the Kafka story. Yeah. And going back to what I mentioned at the top, it's becoming more and more a life or death thing. It's not just about getting information or improving your credit score. You know, it is about surviving. It's not as if if the gatekeeper said, yeah, come on through the gate and you'll finally get to see the law. It's more like the Midwestern housewives who are like, some of you get to eat and some of you don't. There's only so much food. Yeah. Or some of you get to eat chicken water and the rest of you get to eat ketchup water. (laughs) First of all, I was today years old when I found out that the word gatekeeper comes from this context. And second of all, I just love the idea of this sort of quintessential Midwestern housewife. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I kind of especially love the idea of her, you know, sitting down by the hearth and like calculating the caloric intake of all of her, <laughs> each of her children. <laughs> it seems like the outline of a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. 
If it's interesting, we're gonna steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So we talked about two problems with gatekeeping. One is when gatekeeping is not transparent. Another is when gatekeeping has some kind of ulterior motives and doing something other than letting their philosophers in, excluding people for other reasons. And I think a third problem with gatekeeping that I like to talk about that does have a very Kafka element to it, I think this is what a lot of Kafka's novels are about, is the way in which the gatekeeper can be more interested in gatekeeping than what the gate is supposed to let people in to do, right? Because mm. I feel like mm. there's a certain mm. way in which, like when Rick mentioned earlier about journalists who kept secrets about JFK and so on, I think that often when people talk about that, they talk about how for a lot of journalists, access becomes more important than doing journalism, mm -hmm. right? They want to be the person who powerful people will talk to. In order to be the person who powerful people will talk to, you got to not talk about certain things, right? right? And right. that access becomes very much its own gate to a certain kind of complicity with the powerful, right? That you want to not upset the powerful. So that in some sense, being a part of this club becomes more important than doing the job of journalism. And I do think this is an important other element of what can go really wrong with gatekeeping is when people are more interested in the act of excluding and being included than what supposedly, because all these gates are supposed to be into something, right? You gate into journalism is to do journalism, gate into philosophy is to do philosophy, but some people are way more interested in being in than they are about what the supposed in is supposed to do. I really like the way that you're describing that, Jason, and think we can see this in this just ridiculous obsession with, for example, trans people in sports mm. or bathrooms or CRT. Like, I don't actually think that the people who are guarding these gates as viciously as they are care so much about <laughs> trans people in sports or who uses what bathroom or, you know, which legal theory is being taught in third grade. I think what they care about is being the guardians of, you know, whatever, acceptable culture. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bill going through the Illinois legislature that is not going to require, let's be clear on that, it's going to allow for the first time businesses to have bathrooms not just labeled non-gender specific, but to have all their bathrooms be without regard to gender and multiple use, right? So more than one person could be in there and there's no marker, this is the men's room, this is the women's room. And one of our Republican senators said, if my teenage daughter goes into a bathroom and a man walks in after her, I'm going to go in and fucking kill him. First of all, the man just threatened violence, okay? But secondly, I've been in so many other countries around the world, in Poland and Italy and all over the place where there have been for years and years and years bathrooms that more than one person can use and there's no gender on the door. And mm. somehow... It's fine. And let me tell you that as a cis woman, if a line to the ladies' room gets long enough, we will go in the men's <laughs> yeah. bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> I have done it so many times. And never once sexually assaulted anyone, weirdly. <laughs> but yeah, there is a policing of something and it doesn't have anything to do with violence. It doesn't have anything to do with sexual assault or any of that. It's the policing of a certain cultural norm 
that I think is in reaction to a feeling of some kind of loss or something. And there is an incredible amount of gatekeeping going on in this direction these days. Right. And sometimes the gate is kept even if people aren't trying to get in. I was just just talking to my brother and he's like, (laughs) I walk by this bar that has a drag night every night. I've never seen a single kid in line because it's a bar. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of want to ask you guys kind of the opposite of Jason's question. So Jason is describing, you know, people who are so interested in gatekeeping that they don't actually really care what the gate is or what's in front or behind it. And I want to ask you guys, because I find myself in this situation sometimes where I'm maybe so involved in whatever it is, like whatever the community that's being gated is, that I inadvertently find myself gatekeeping Mm. when I don't mean to. I mean, do you guys do that? Like, how so? Like an example? Yeah. So um, just to pick a largely non-controversial example, like when people from Baltimore say they're from the South. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm the same way when people from the suburbs say they're from Chicago. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how do we keep each other from – how do we keep ourselves from inadvertently gatekeeping? I mean, I guess it doesn't matter about something like that, you know, but if I'm doing that, I've got to be doing other things similar. Yeah. I'll admit that it, although I don't know that I've said it in this way, it has crossed my mind before when I've been at a conference or hearing a paper or something, this is not real philosophy. Mm. Yeah, I admit that has also crossed my mind. And almost every year when we get a new cohort of graduate students, I'm out at some event, reception or whatever, and we get to talking and the talk turns pizza. And then there's a huge discussion about whether deep dish pizza is pizza. And someone gets really (laughs) upset about this and they're like, it's a casserole and it's an abomination and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And by the way, in Chicago, we don't eat that much deep dish pizza ourselves. It's mostly for the rest of you. But a part of me is like, who cares about I'm not going to. This is one gate I'm not going to keep. Like, let let (laughs) a million pizzas bloom. Detroit pizza, deep dish pizza, Sicilian pizza, whatever. Let it bloom. Eat it in the bathroom if you want. (laughs) (laughs) The non-pizza specific bathroom. (laughs) I think we all constantly think something is not a real X, whatever X might be, whether it be pizza or philosophy. I don't really have any problem with us doing that all the time. I think it's probably helpful to make that a self-reflective moment and think, what are your standards for something being an X and why do you care? Mm -hmm. And I think those are two questions that need to be asked about all gatekeeping. I do think that for me, gatekeeping is just like there's so much stuff you got to have some filter for it. And at some point, something becomes not pizza. I don't know what point it becomes not pizza. But at some point, it does become not pizza. Or else everything is pizza. And that's... (laughs) I mean, I think this is in part the complaint of people who call cancel culture cancel culture, Mm. right? Is that there's a gatekeeping going on there and that it's not transparent and it's denying people access to really important resources, like, for example, being able to say whatever they want on the internet. And so when I think, you know, this shouldn't be allowed on the internet or this shouldn't be allowed on Twitter to be specific, I don't think that what I'm doing is gatekeeping. I don't even think what I'm doing is canceling, but I don't think that I can make a good argument why it's not. Right. Mm. But in some sense, I mean, part of what bothers me about the whole cancel culture thing is that 
all culture is cancel culture. All culture is a matter of saying, we don't eat this, we don't do this, we don't say this. Right. A set of right. unstated rules about everything. And in some sense, to have a culture is to exclude certain things, right? To have an area is to say that it, it ends at the suburbs. And if you're from the suburbs, you're not from there. Yeah. Part of the whole yeah. cancel culture thing is people are just unhappy with who's saying who should be included and not included. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point that, of course, all culture is cancel culture because culture is to say we're not doing this accidentally and we're not animals. In order not to be animals and in order not to do this accidentally, then we have to make certain choices. And one of my colleagues often points out that there are cultural norms, you know, like when you're setting a table, the fork goes on one side of the plate and whatever. But it's not like if you put the fork on the wrong side of the plate, you get sentenced to prison. And this is what bothers me about the notion of cancel culture is that I don't think that I'm saying to you that you shouldn't say that. You can't. No, I'm saying you shouldn't say that. I'm not saying you can't say that. What I am saying is I'm not going to listen. And what I'm saying most of all is I'm not paying $50 for a ticket to come and hear you say it. Right. And that's a cultural choice on my part. But now I'm starting to reflect on all the ways in which I've sort of unbeknownst to me, been a gatekeeper. And the Chicago example is a big one. <laughs> I bristle at the fact that people say that I'm not from the Midwest because I'm from Chicago. You know, that's a gate that I want to get into that law. Like I'm standing <laughs> before the law and I want to get in. There's only so much food. Have you got to bring your caloric intake with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those Midwestern housewives are policing the borders. Of <laughs> there is a very stern woman at the front of that gate. <laughs> yeah, I'm now a little befuddled at how much I am, even if only quietly, I am a gatekeeper all the time. Yeah, I mean, when we were thinking about choosing this as a topic, one of my struggles was that I feel like I have a lot of complaints about gatekeeping, but only the gates that I'm not let into. <laughs> and the ones that I am let into or that I am myself gatekeeping, I just don't recognize as gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's been this kind of pejorative tone given to gatekeeping as a concept that prevents us sometimes from seeing the ways in which we're all gatekeepers. And I agree with the way Jason said it. Like, there's always gates. Every culture is a cancel culture. You know, there's always a them. There's always an outside. And that means that I'm either keeping a gate, I'm inside a gate, or I'm outside a gate. And I can't only complain about it when I'm outside the gate. Right, right, right. And I've experienced often being angry at the gate when I hear from some people, Jason, you might hear this from time to time, that either Marx is not a philosopher or he's not a real philosopher. Mm -hmm. He may have been one early, but then he made this decision to stop being a philosopher. And that's a gate that I want to break down and, you know, smash that gate. And then it happens almost every time I'm at a conference that is about Marx or is attended by Marxists that I am said to be not a Marxist or <laughs> the wrong kind of Marxist, most of all. Mm. And there's a lot of gatekeeping going on in relation to Marx. It's breathtaking sometimes, the number of gates that are within there. But at the same time, I think Marx is an interesting example because, and here's my neo-Marxist bias coming out, uh, <laughs> because when you go to a Marxist conference, you don't just hear philosophers, you hear sociologists and so yeah. on. I mean, I remember once when I was in grad school, I had this Marx reading group, and a friend of mine was in it 
because we have people from different disciplines, etc. And he said to me at one point, he said, are we talking about capital the book? Or are we talking about capital the actual social relation? You know, Because I think what you're saying is right about capital the book. It's probably wrong about capital the social relation. Mm. Because to some extent, I mean, Marx's own ability to step outside of philosophy was he recognized that reality doesn't have a gate. Mm. Just like he early on, right, he went from law to philosophy when he was a young man because he realized that legal questions rested on philosophical presuppositions. And later in his life, Marx recognized that a lot of what was happening in politics was determined by what's happening in the economy, sort of straddling the gate because, I mean, gates are our creations. The world is a mix of all different sort of stuff. And to make sense of it, sometimes you have to recognize that the gates are useful filters, but they can be hindrances as well to make sense of the world. I think outside of just professional things like who is a real philosopher or what is real philosophy, but most of the gatekeeping that bothers me the most has to do with social relations. <laughs> you know, like what is real femininity and masculinity, mm. for example, mm-hmm. or what is middle class? Mm. Right, and right. I'm not sure that those are as Kafka-esque as how I get information and what information I get or how my credit score is kept, because I do still think that those are gates that are largely constructed and kept through a much broader social conversation, cultural conversation that I can be a part of or cannot be a part of. Right, yeah. Just so we're clear, one thing we are not gatekeepers about is who can be a patron and who can't be a patron. (laughs) Y'all are welcome. That door is wide that, open. That, that door is wide. There's not even a door. Come on in. There's not even a door. Just walk right There's in. There's not a, one single Midwestern housewife. <laughs> well, me maybe, but I'm not considered Midwestern. And yeah, we appreciate all of our Patreon patrons. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, we reached out to you all to see if you're interested in participating in an Afterthoughts episode. So if you are, hit us up on our email, which can be found on our website, hotelbarpodcast.com. And our Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash Hotel bar sessions. So it looks like uh, our bartender's keeping the gate of last call, which is a kind of gatekeeping that I am opposed to. <laughs> but when you were a bartender, you were not. When I was a bartender, that was yes. a totally different story. <laughs> All right, y'all, I'll get us a ride unless that gate is being kept as well. <laughs> All right, guys, catch you next Later. time. Bye. Bye.